Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color for people of color and everyone else. I'm Halia Lee, VP of Programming at Ampers, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And our special guest today, I'll have her um, introduce herself. Hi, I'm Pa Her, and I am a artist and an educator at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. And she's being very modest. She's also the Star Tribune's Artist of the Year. Woohoo! Uh, yes, for her photography work. <laughs> so, um, so tell us a little bit about your your um, photo journey. I've known you for for a long time, and you're not just a photographer. You know, I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, she takes photos," but she's so much more than that. Um, uh, so, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Um, I know uh, they mentioned uh, the search of you mentioned this in the article, but. Um, you had some really big exhibits this this past year. So fill us in. Yeah, so I um, graduated with, like the short end of this is, um, I graduated with a BFA in photography from the, uh, from uh, Minneapolis College of Arts and Design. And then I went and received an MFA from, uh, Yale University, um, uh, decided to move back home and um, have a practice here in the cities. Um, and I've been practicing photography for the last, um, you know, uh, like 15 years. Um, I make work um, about uh, my community, the Hmong community. Um, I'm interested in um, among diaspora, I'm interested in things that are happening in the Hmong community, and um, a lot of the work that I make stems mostly from these interests that I have within the Hmong community. Pa, can you chart. explain? I'm sorry, you mentioned MFA a couple of times for our audience. Can you explain what an MFA is? Yeah, so um, an MFA is a Master's of Fine Arts, and um, I uh, went to the Yale University in Connecticut, um, New Haven, Connecticut, and, um, you know, spent two years um, sort of uh, learning about um, uh, photography, theories, the history of photography, um, sort of really immersed myself in the photographic world. Um, and um, out of that two years, I, uh, you know, received an MFA for that. Um, and so Masters of Fine Arts um, in photography. Um, and, you know, most people um, can take that degree and can... Um, go back into the community and teach um, um, in colleges and in universities that offer art programs, um, that offer art classes. 
Um, some uh, go out and uh, just have a art practice and are, you know, able to make work and, um, you know, have a viable, a viable, um, make a viable uh, wage. And, um, and so, you know, I was really, um, I've been really fortunate that I, um, you know, uh, that I came back to Minnesota and that I was able to um, pick pick up teaching jobs. Um, I was an adjunct for a really long time, but also while being an adjunct, I was also able to continue my art practice. And, um, you know, like, like things just don't happen overnight, you know, um, um, you know, I've had, I've had shows in the Twin Cities. Um, I've, you know, been fortunate enough to receive grants in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, been fortunate enough to have, you know, a uh, really great mentorship um, from some of the, you know, um, giants that do live here in the Twin Cities, some art giants that live here. And so, um, yeah, because of that, I just, I feel like I've been really fortunate because I've been able to, been able to do all those things. Um, and just recently, you know, I, um, uh, you know, got a tenure track teaching job at the University of Minnesota. And okay, so- I was hoping you was going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I feel like everything, you know, it's a, like at, at, at the age of 40, I feel like I'm in a place that uh, feels a bit more secure than like maybe when I was in my 30s or when I was in my 20s, you know, so. You know, I I have to. Uh, you're you're in watching and um, engaging in write ups about your work. Thank you, Lee, for for helping us to 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 do some of that context. But I've I've fallen in love with your work. So I, I'm uh, since you won't ever do it, and it's been clear from the interviews I've seen and read that yeah. that you stay true to self. I just want to underscore a couple of things that you. That, that have excited me about your work it's to give you your flowers now. And I mean that pun intended mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the exhibit yes. at the Walker. But, yes, but yes. Um, you know, even when you were at Yale, you talked about in the talk that you gave at the Walker for the exhibit that opened there, you talked about um, being at Yale and being kind of bored with what you were having, the hoops you were having to jump to there and made the investment to come back to Minnesota to the subject matter that that was home to you. And I just thought that was very powerful. So as you talk about things falling in line and some of the graciousness, um, and I, and I love that about the connection between um, at least African-American and Hmong cultural spaces is that we, we, we will give the universe the honor that it's due for putting things and opportunities in front of us. But you went and grabbed some of those opportunities. Well, I mean, that was a huge investment to come all the way back to Minnesota as frequently as you talked about to get, um, to, 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 to do the subject matter that, that, that spoke to you. And I think that's a, that's a powerful and important thing, um, that, that it is, 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 is part of the boldness that I see in your work. Um, I'm, I'm really curious. You, you told a story, uh, in one of the videos I watched, you talked, you told a story about, um, fighting with the sibling to, to, to get into bed with your grandmother, uh, Mm -hmm. when she would come to visit and getting those sacred stories. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are some of the things that have made you to want to grab on so hard, 
um, to telling the story of your community, of of your space, doing all the things it takes to be <laughs> a tenure track teacher and a master of fine arts graduate from Yale and the uh, you know artist of the year for the Star Trek yeah. trip. But you, it, part of that through line has been you're you're like I'm gonna tell this story because this story needs to be told. What what's yeah. been driving you through that? And can I add to um, a friendly amendment to Anthony's question is all in a predominantly white space. Ooh, come on. Right? Come on. Right? I mean, the white institutions that you've been at, the white space that that you are in at. So there you go. So when I was at Yale, um, in the way that uh, the structure, the MFA structure, uh, actually the way that the photo structure work is, um, it is... uh, critique heavy. And so what that means is um, the expectation of MFA students would be for us to make work. And so every five weeks we would uh, have critiques. And so in the span of a semester, um, I would have critiques three times. And um, I remember my first uh, semester being uh, there at Yale and um, really trying to think about like what I was going to photograph. And, um, you know, so the the makeup at New Haven is that um, like right in New Haven, um, Yale is one of the largest um, employers of the city, Um, but there's a huge disparity, right? And so um, you don't see this, but the minute you walk out two blocks away from the campus or even three blocks away from the campus. There's this huge disparity, Um, you know, um, poor black neighborhoods, um, a lot of um, underprivileged um, people of color live on the outskirts. And so my cohorts, um, you know, will oftentimes go out of the university to make this work and oftentimes go into these communities that they don't belong in, that we don't belong in, um, that are not our communities. And we will make these really beautiful portraits and we'll bring them back. And we have this sort of really philosophical critique about the work and, and then like, and really not talk about this sort of disparity. And I think that like, that was really present in um, the time that I was there. And so, um, and, but, but then also like, there's this, um, idea too right that um that like i'm in one of the most like i'm in an ivy league school and the perception is that everybody that goes to this ivy league school is smart and intelligent and that um and that like they would surely know like that i am among and where i'm from and like my history but the reality was that they had absolutely no idea what mom was I had no idea what our history was. And so, um, like, there was that too, right? And so, um, for me, I think I learned really early on that I didn't want to make photographs in New Haven because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to um, add to some, really, the conflicts that I was having with the, 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 the university in itself, the privilege that uh, the students in the university had, and then also the disparity that like was like a block away from our school or, uh, you know, in any direction. It, it was really important for me to always make sure that I came back home to photograph um, and that 
um, in that like the work that I would make um, would always be about work that was in my own community because I think it's so important to um, to, to 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 photograph people um, that you belong to and that you know and that like I just like often think about the people that were photographing my community that didn't belong to my community and the kind of stories that they were telling whether it be true or not um you know I just think that like there's so much power in that and um I didn't want anybody to take that power away from me you know and so um I would um come back yeah it was like it was really important for me to just come back and to make work and when I was on break it was really important that I was like making work and thinking about the work that I was making so that when I went back to um, the university and when I went back well, I uh, made sure that I always had work um, you know for critiques and so I think like that is like that 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 that's something that's like really important and I think that that's something that I um, am still you know um, there's so much in my community to talk about to like to work on and um, you know I'm still very much invested in um making work um, that is strictly from within the community. Yeah. I love that. Um, makes so much sense to me, right? Like mm. you're from the community, you get to tell the stories from your community and that some people don't always see it that way. And we see a lot of people come into our communities and be like, oh no, we're here to share your stories and give you voice to the voiceless and blah, 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 you know? Um, and then we never see them again. Uh, one thing I heard that was interesting um, Paho, you had said in the article from the Star Trek, it was like, you don't feel like a monk celebrity, which is really funny just because like, um, we know each other and we are kind of related, uh, but like everybody is, right, um, in the monk culture. <laughs> so, um, and I've been following you and I've seen all the exhibits that you do, but at the same time, people think of like monk celebrities, they think of singers, um, you know, or dancers and stuff like that. And it's really interesting that we're like, oh, well, this is like, you know, um, it is a real serious art form. It is showing things within our community that like sometimes Hmong people don't even know or recognize. And so it's, it's so to me, it's interesting to say, you know, when we think of celebrities, we don't think of, of people who are doing high quality um, arts that may not be considered popular, quote unquote. Yeah. You know, um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a celebrity. Um, and like, it's really interesting um, because um, like sometimes I'll go to places where these um, really popular Hmong singers hang out and they will always um, like, uh, there'll be a line of people asking for their photographs. You know, this one time I had the privilege of photographing a, a well-known um, Hmong um, chef um, at a um, at, at one of the uh, Hmong markets, and it was like for me like um, this like the first time I've seen like uh, how like people treat a celebrity. You know, it was like really wonderful to like see people like come up to him and tell him like that they saw him on tv and then also like 
to like ask to like take a picture with him and then also to like to, to like offer fee food to him and so like that was like my first like introduction to like a uh, celebrity world um <laughs> but like I yeah I I'm not like I I don't get any of those treatments um and I like really like nobody really has nobody has an idea of like it's hard. Like people don't have an idea of what I do or like the scope of my work. And so I feel like I've always been under the radar and I like the fact that I'm under the radar. It's like the fact that I'm like, that I'm just this regular person um, who can go out into the world, make work and then, you know, have this exhibition and then like go back into like, uh, you know, like in, in, into their studio and put their heads down and like, you know, and, and, and make work. Um, yeah. So I, I like that. Uh, and, you know, my family doesn't obviously, my family obviously do not, you know, uh, treat me any differently, you know, like my mom thinks that, um, like, I mean, she doesn't understand. Like, she's like, what you like take pictures and then like, like museums show them and so like she's like very suspicious of like my practice anyways Helene, um, that sounds like your mother that sounds a lot like yeah that sounds like Helene's parents that is my, her, I, I said we're related but our moms are but it seems like they are maybe right they're they so much the same, the same. <laughs> yes yes media is like, very different i think for immigrant refugee parents is like oh you're in the media and they're like what what why what is that you know why aren't yeah, you yeah, a yeah. doctor or why aren't you working a nine-to-five job with 401k and all this stuff you know it's very different to them and then in addition to that I was always doing stuff about the Hmong community and they'd be like why are you airing our dirty laundry or you know that kind of stuff and I don't know if you've received any of that kind of feedback as well I know you've been photographing like veterans I'm sure they're mm -hmm. not going Pahul why are you you know doing all this stuff to our community whereas I'm I was you know covering news issues or something and people are like why are you airing this out yeah well, you know, I was photographing, I, so I photographed veterans in, from like 2012 onwards to 2014. And like during that time, um, President Obama had just signed into law the Stolen Valors Act. And um, I remember I spoke to a um, very prominent Hmong elder in our community just like letting him know that like, um, you know, um, that like the photographs that I've been making this summer of, of his, of, of, of the, um, of the organization that he belonged to, of these men, um, that I was going to be, um, showing them at MIA, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And I remember, um, him getting really mad about it. And, you know, like, um, like he was mad about like me doing that because he was more so worried about these men being charged, um, with like a federal crime and like mm. also like, um, being charged with, um, the Stolen Valors Act. And it was such a oh. wild, you know, it was such a wild thing too, because these men fought, they are veterans. They're not recognized, 
like in the eyes of the United States military. And because they're not recognized in the eyes of the United States military, they've been trying to really, they've been trying to really um, um, like insert themselves into like um, a history and like a military that like um, that that has all but like forgotten about them in some sense, right? And then like here is this man who is this respected elder in our community telling me among women saying like you don't know what you're doing, you can't do this because when you put this up, like these men could be charged because the uniforms that they're um, um, you know, uh, the uniforms that they're wearing uh, are not, you know, uniforms that have been uh, given to them by the, the United States Army and so forth and so forth, right? Um, and so, like, but also, like, that's, like, that was the point, right? And that, like, these men um, and, and, and the law specifically, you know, it was, like, a crime if you, like, use a uniform to gain like some monetary, um, you know, advantages. And obviously these men were not doing that, but there was this sort of, um, like people were like really afraid that like that these men were going to get arrested um, because of the Stolen Valors Act. And so, I mean, I often go back to that. And I think like there, there always is this sort of pushback. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and then I remember like um, I ha- gave a talk and then the next day, um, another um, Hmong uh, man reached out to me and uh, literally was just like, you know, you should really rethink this project. Um, you should probably never show it again because repercussions that could happen from showing this work. And like, it just like totally didn't make sense to me, you know? So, so yeah, so not only like, like not only does my family not really understand like the work that I do, but I think like for the most part, like or, or like in the past, um, my members of my own community have also, you know, um, uh, I've had like hard times understanding sort of the work and like um, reasons for the work, and I think that also to the work then sometimes doesn't get taken seriously because it's like photography, you know, it's like considered I'm scholarly. I'm not a scholar, you know? And yeah. so, yeah. And so like, it's, it's like all of this, but you know, like the research that is like involved in art making, like can be comparable to like a scholar, uh, uh, you know, doing research for their paper or their, mm-hmm. you know, um, their essays. There's a lot of different things that you've talked about that you've brought up that I think are, that are ongoing themes of counter stories. Of course. I mean, back to when you talked about your experience at Yale and, and, and Yale has this, you know, this uh, reputation of being an Ivy League school. And I think that oftentimes in this country, we equate higher education for individuals who are smart and should know everything. Mm-hmm. When we actually find out that when we go to higher education and we, we narrow our subject matter, mm-hmm. that the more we learn, the narrower our subject becomes. So I think that, but, but, but yet on the outside of those institutions, 
because we have these higher education degrees, people tend to think that we have this cross barrier knowledge. You know what I'm trying to say? So, so higher education indeed does not mean that individuals who get those degrees are going to know a subject matter across the board. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that to make an excuse. I'm saying that because I'm sure those same students at Yale had no idea who an Ojibwe person is. Of course. From Minnesota, one of the original inhabitants of this country. And so, I mean, because, you know, I would ask a similar type question of the students I taught at Metropolitan State University, where in Minnesota we have 11 reservations and not one single student could answer that question. The other thing, however, that really tweaked my interest is because I've kind of think of or fall in this area, not quite knowing what the answer is or, or what we do, but I'll give you an example. So probably 20 years ago, I had someone, an Ojibwe individual from Canada, come and do a training while I worked for my reservation at Mille Lacs. And this in in Canada, the tribes up there never had their spirituality or their religious ideas outlawed by the Canadian government. Here in the United States, that happened. Our spirituality and and religious beliefs, um, we couldn't practice from 1890 all the way up until 1973 Mm. or 78, excuse me. So... So for us, it went underground. This individual from Canada never had to deal with that. So when they came and did this training, they were they openly talked about Ojibwe spirituality and, and traditional practices. And I purposely brought this person to do that type of training. Immediately after that training, I was approached by at least five or six of our of my band members, other individuals who are part of the Malax band like myself. And I was, I was criticized for having someone talk about our spirituality and our religious beliefs outside of our community, because mm-hmm. for years we were taught not to talk about those things because we would go to jail. We could be put in jail. So there's that, juxtaposition, and I know I just butchered that word. There's that <laughs> intersection of course. between beliefs and traditions and our current situation. Of course. And where that meets and how long do those institutions stay in place when and when do those type of things begin to change and evolve? And I think that's what you were describing when you were talking about some of the photos you were taking in your community and yeah. the fact that you were getting pushback. And I think that that's always tension mm. in our communities when when um, when that happens because mm-hmm. it's not clear between what's right or wrong or what's good or bad or when do things change? You know what I'm talking? I mean, I so yeah. I mean, I can hear that that pull. I mean, even for myself, um, following the Hmong community since 
since the end of Vietnam, um, since, since the end of that war, um, just overall the changes in, in your community, um, I often wondered how long your traditional beliefs were, were going to remain while you were here in this country before they begin to not totally change, but begin to dissolve. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. we're now like into what third or fourth generation. And you can see those changes happening to where now I think some of your grandkids only speak English. Yeah. Right? No, absolutely. I mean, I often think about the war, the war itself, right? And like the history of that war and how it's being told to me and also like to um my um in into like uh folks that are, are are younger than me. And I think like for a really long time, like you know, I always often joke about the war with my um my friends because um, it's, you know, oftentimes when people in our community and, um, and like, um, Americans, um, white Americans, like talk about the American war, the Vietnam war, they often will talk about the soldier and the men. And, um, I used to always say, well, like maybe Hmong women and children didn't exist until 1975 because <laughs> like, People don't talk about Hmong women and children and as if like this war like only affected Hmong men and, you know, and that like, and so like the ways in which we talk about the war and the way in which we attribute the war to just one gender um, feels like not right, right? And like in, in the eyes of my grandmother, who like lost her husband or, you know, um, or my, you know, or, or, uh, or when she, when she lost her, uh, sons and her daughter, because she, she had to, you know, uh, they all had to flee. And, you know, and so like, there's these, like, there's these ideas too about, um, the war and like, um, whose story it is to tell and, um, whose isn't to tell, like even in, within our community, um, and I think it's also um, like, you know, I um, I often wonder about like what my role is like as a Hmong woman um, making work uh, about these Hmong issues. Um, oftentimes like um, uh, like from the from like my perspective, like always from my perspective as a Hmong American uh, woman who grew up in a very traditional household. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to think about that and like what that does to the work that I make. You know, I think I think um, earlier, early on when I, um, right after I graduated from uh, my MFA program, I went to this um, uh, like photo review um, uh, thing. Uh, and somebody looked at my work and um, I think like this white woman literally said to me, um, like, uh, these are great, but they will never be able to, like, I can't market these in, um, like, in, in the photo world because, um, like, what you're doing is, um, there's a niche, right? It's, a, it's like a very small niche in, in your work and there's a very small very little appetite for your work 
um, was what I was told really early on, you know. Um, and, but I don't know, like, there's something about, like, um, needing to, um, like, maybe, like, prove her wrong. I don't know. Like, you know, um, you know, like, there's this, like, idea of that, like, yeah, like, I just, like, yeah, like, I oftentimes work with like a chip on my shoulder and sometimes that can be a bad thing but I think like for for me it's been um uh, it's been very um I don't know like it it hasn't stopped me if anything it's made me more focused um because um somebody's told me that I can't do it or that it is impossible or that um like the work that I'm making only applies to a very small sector of like the people in America or in the world and that folks aren't interested. And so I think about that a lot, but, you know, um, Donna, to go to your, um, like what you said, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that maybe you are like, um, you know, uh, beyond, um, like the way in which you think is um, beyond, uh, you know, it's, it's like light years ahead, you know, and that, and that, and that, like maybe the elders in your community at some point will catch up, right? And so I don't know, like I think about work in that way sometimes, you know. I'm just so glad that you've had the grit to 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 continue your work. And as a footnote to that white woman's comment about your work, let's contextualize it. She uh, she likely didn't know. I'm going to be I'm going to be gracious that the AAPI community is the fastest growing community in this country. Absolutely. So, a her her statement is short sighted, and b it's uninformed at best. You know so. We need your voice and we need your lens, literally, to begin to bring life to, um, you know, the rest of the country's understanding of the AAPI community. My question is along the lines of the pandemic. You know, we're now finishing up our third year of the pandemic, global pandemic, going into the fourth year. And we know the, uh, the importance of art uh, during this time, I mean, any any time it's really valuable, but more so at the beginning of of the lockdown that we experienced, so many of us turned to art. Can you share with us what were your feelings and initiatives and the work that you did along those lines early on in the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so uh, right before the pandemic, I had a show in. Um, uh, in Seattle, Washington. And I was, um, gonna have a show in Vancouver. Um, this was March of 2020. So like a week before I was scheduled to fly out to Vancouver, um, I got word from, uh, the, uh, my friend in Vancouver and also a friend that was working for the U.S. Department that, um, borders would be shutting down and that like it was um, most likely we were going to go into shutdown mode. And so, um, you know, I never had ever been in a situation like 
the situation that the whole entire entire world was in in 2020. Um, and so um, I am, um, I would say that I am a portrait photographer. And so that I, I, you know, I require um, to um, require the collaboration of other people in order to make work. And um, this has, you know, the pandemic and um, uh, being home and not having to photograph people definitely took a toll on me um, and my practice. And so um, for me, it was really thinking about what are these different modes of image making that I could, you know, that I could, I could do that could, that could happen. I didn't know that the pandemic was going to last, um, uh, you know, three, four, like, as long as it's continued to last. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, at that time, my husband and I, um, we were caring for um, uh, our niece and our nephew, and their parents were in California. And um, I think that um, their parents had, in June, had asked um, for us to see if we would be okay driving the kids to California to see them. And um, you know, you know, we had gone and we hadn't gone anywhere. And so we said we would, and um, I decided that I would bring my camera with me um, and that the worst, the, the least thing I could do was document our, our, our this family trip that we were going to make. Um, and so um, my brother and my sister and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law lived, they moved to this uh, place in Northern California, Mount Shasta Viesta is where they moved to. And so um, we drove down there, um, you know, I was like really keen to the um, landscape. Um, it was the sort of really deserty um, lava rock beds um, that like uh, where like this really beautiful mountain range, Mount Shasta, um, uh, uh, looked down on early on in 2000 and like really early 2020, there was this article called the green rush that came out by the New York Times. And the New York Times really talked about this region that I was at and how Hmong people were um, uh, like moving to this region. And with the um, legalization of marijuana, there had been um, this sort of uh, uptick in um, illegal marijuana operations like in this area. And they were liking the marijuana operation to um, the opium operations in the 1940s in Laos, right? And so I was like, oh my God, this is so fascinating. Um, you know, as somebody who like um, often thinks about Laos and like, and what like this Laos in the 1940s can look like, because that's the era of my um, my grandmother. And that's like what my grandmother oftentimes talk about when she talks about Laos. And so um, I was like, really like this, like really piqued my interest. And so I started, so I, so I made these photographs, came back home, started doing research on this very specific area, found out that like, you know, the government deemed it uninhabitable and uh, was like in the 1960s was sort of selling this land for like quarters on 
like on acres to people to anybody who would buy it and that like historically this place um has really been this sort of drug haven um where like people oftentimes would um have like massive marijuana operations right and so like and that like historically it has always been this sort of um uh, uh haven for marijuana growth and so um and so like this also really piqued my interest and then also like thinking about my um like uh my photographic like history and like also like uh photography like uh generally um you know i i learned really early on about you know timothy o'sullivan and anzo adams and uh carlton Watkins, you know and these are all um uh, uh, you know, photographers who photographed um, the West, um, uh, you know, often for the United States, but mostly um, for like as a campaign to sort of have settlers from the East move westward, right? And so I was really thinking about like this idea of landscape photography, the history of landscape photography, the history of landscape photography in the West, um, and sort of that motto. Um, and then, you know, like, like what it meant for Hmong people too, you know, um, you know, Hmong people like, like this, like marijuana growing is a very recent thing, you know, um, but also like to move into these different territories um, where uh, oftentimes they are the first um, Southeast Asian families to go and to like to live there and just having to sort of really like make their mark. Um, I was really um, sort of like wanted to like wanted to make these photographs, these landscape photographs, um, but like also really wanted to talk about like the history of Hmong people, uh, you know, the history of marijuana operation, the history of this land. And like, um, uh, and also like tie it to um, uh, opium cultivation. Um, but how do you do that? How do you, how how do you how do you how do you do that? And how do you talk about these other other issues like systematic racism? Like you know, like um, uh, in these towns, like. Uh, the local government would make it incredibly hard for Hmong people to get um, permits to drill wells and to have sub septic tanks. And because they couldn't get permits for uh, wells and septic tanks, they couldn't, uh, you know, uh, to, they couldn't they couldn't build a house on there. And because they couldn't build a house in there, they weren't they they weren't uh, uh, they weren't residents. And because they weren't residents, they weren't able to, you know, uh, make. Uh, or change any um, local policies. You know, there was this sort of water restriction. There was the lava uh, the lava um, fires that went through in 2021 that um, devastated um, half of this, um, the Mount, um, Mount Shasta Viesta uh, subdivision. And, uh, you know, Hmong people's livelihoods were really just like, like went up in flames. And um, nothing was done about that. Um, you know, there was this killing of, uh, of this Hmong man who, um, you know, literally was trying to save his dogs and were killed by a local police officer who, you know, uh, was, you know, later, later, later on uh, down the line was like justified in his killing. I mean, we like these are stories that like we 
are so familiar with, right? And these like disparities that are um, that happen um, in these communities are also like not new and is nothing new to like the landscape and the fabric of like of like of, of, of what it means to be an American in America. And so I wanted to really um, like make a body of work that like talks about all of this. Your exhibit at the Walker, is that the one from your California photos or? Currently up at the Walker. It's up until um, January 25th or 28th. I don't remember, but it's, it's up. It's been up since July, that exhibition is the um my uh, Mount Shasta work and I call it Pakondu, which is this really poetic way of saying um, you know, it translates to flowers of the sky, but it's a very poetic way of saying marijuana. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> which is a different word, right? Okay. Your intentionality to tell that story, I mean you 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 talk about the tension between telling the story and you know, making it make sense to 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 other folks, even in the exhibit at the Minneapolis Institute of Art with the with the soldiers, you got as deep as as making the frames. You talked about the research you did into classic um, uh, American iconography in 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 the framing of presidents' pictures and made and wanted to incorporate that. So there's because it, it, you know you, that 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 drive to call this point out, right? We right, we right. if we're going to talk about stolen valor, the omission of the experiences of these soldiers in the Secret War is stealing their valor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think that's a that intentionality. And so as I hear you describe the challenge of telling a story, one of the things that that uh, I, I wonder about, and I, and and you at '80s baby. I'm an 80s baby, Lee, 80s babies unite, right? But you all in your experience have have the 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 challenge of being the 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 sense-making generation. Mm-hmm. Um because you're the first generation with access to um at length the um uh socialization in this American context. So you had to do the translating for 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 family members. You had to do the translating of the experience and now you're coming into a space of being the next generation of culture keepers, um, mm. as 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 we move as we move in. So you've got you've got a you've got some interesting challenges to have to do that. And through your art, I think you've you you have demonstrated the intentionality of of staying in that tension spaces when you were talking about trying to bring the stories of 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 women and children into the mix. So we're not just talking about the soldiers, right? And then facing the the pushback in community, right? For how we're supposed to be because we we're supposed to be this block and mm-hmm. now that we're 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 acculturating. So I, I I hear that tension both in your work and in the talks that you give. And and one of the wonderings that I have is is for yourself, right? Because nobody ever talks about the caretaking for the folks who are putting themselves into the position of having to take on the challenge of telling these difficult stories. Mm. And so I'm curious, you know, as you, as you, as you illustrate how, how intentional you are and how much of a challenge it is to put these onto the, into the space. I'm curious about what your regimen for your own self care is. This Mm. is a common conversation we have on, on counter stories because as much as we're all doing this work and trying to be out there, we, we don't, we don't take care of ourselves or at least we don't, we aren't as explicit about how we take care of ourselves. Mm. Um, You know, so I'm just curious about how you, how you do that (laughs) as Mm. you, cause you, you strike me as somebody who's not going to stop 
uh, pushing and poking and 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 I love that. And that's what's up. Keep that boldness. So so what? How are you taking care of yourself, staying in this tension space? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think like for me, um, I have a group of people that um, that are that 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 is um, really good friends uh, and family too, right? Like, so that like that know the non-professional side of me that knows the, like the younger, um, like gangster side of me, right. That I, um, that I, like being around them really grounds me. And I think is like the self care, right. Cause when I'm with them, I don't have to think about my gallery where I don't have to think about like the exhibition that I'm in a, that's going to come up or the curator that's going to come to the studio. Right. It's like those things don't matter to them, nor do they matter to me when I'm with them uh, because like they uh, like my value as a person isn't based on um, like these accolades. And so I, so I have them. And I'm with them a lot. Um, And then also, like, you know, I love my bed. I love sleeping. I will sometimes go and, like, get my nails done once every two weeks. Um, You know, and, and, like, I'll write stupid stuff on, like, on Facebook to my, you know, (laughs) close friends and, like, you know, be, you know, uh, be an idiot sometimes and, you know, and so like I, I so how that, many times have you been uh, in Facebook jail? Uh, a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah, something too. Um, I like lost my husband um, in um, early 2021, and you know that was like a really that is a very hard like is something that I'm still like like trying to figure out like what is a life without him who am I without him like because for so long our identities were so closely tied together and I am now realizing that like I have to be this like person that is like other than uh my husband and so um yeah I just like I I think like being around people who like genuinely care about you who are not interested in whether or not you are artist of the year, uh, you know, who are only interested in your well-being, like that really helps. And that that's what um that's what I do. You know, that's yeah, that's that's why that's that's why I keep um around me, like really close to me. Your, your squad. My squad. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I think we have in common, too, is, like, um, not only are we, like, media people, which, like, a lot of Hmong elders don't get, but we're female uh, media mm-hmm. people. And then on top mm-hmm. of that, you know, you we're kind of raised to be, like, oh, be quiet, you know, be a good mm-hmm. girl, become a good wife. And, like, we're both really outspoken. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that gets us into a lot of trouble but at the same time it's like we're both making these great moves right career wise um which reminds me of right times icon of the year michelle yo who uh, 
Pat and yeah. I probably, I mean, we we grew up renting VHS films of Chinese movies with Jet Li and Jackie huh? Chan and Michelle Yeoh that were translated and voiced, like dubbed in Hmong, right? But like, that's what we did growing up. And so um, seeing an outspoken Asian woman artist as icon of the year was like a big deal. Seeing you, Paho, as the artist of the year was a big deal. It's like, this is the year for loud Asian women or something. Like, we are finally, you know, being able to go out there and say stuff and then not be penalized or outcasted or, you know, whatever um, for those reasons. I don't know if you guys saw everything everywhere all at once. Man, that blew my mind. I have to watch it again because... I don't think I caught everything. And being, you know, this, and it's not just for like the Asian community in media right now, right? Like we're having this in Hollywood, like people, diversity is a big word now and people want to make movies. Uh, people are giving opportunities for people of color to be able to make these big Hollywood movies now. Um, right. So I want to recognize that we've had uh, two very strong Asian women recognized for their media work this year. Um, both nationally and locally. And I, I just think that's important to acknowledge as a first. Yeah. I mean, like, Hmong women are always, we are always rocking it. I mean, you know, Sunisa Lee, you know, you think about, like, the, like, Hmong women um, executive directors. You think about, you know, I mean, I, I, I think, too, that, like, um, we, in our community, especially, you know, um, I think that like we've, I've, uh, at least for me, I've always been told that like, um, like being a, a woman was never going to be enough, right. For, uh, our Hmong men and, uh, like our like Hmong fathers. And I think like, it's like, like that understanding that, like drives like that pushes the drive to like wanna like um I don't know like uh like do something and or become somebody better than uh like um what um like what what our Hmong brothers and our Hmong fathers um expect of us, you know, like I always like I think like for me like you know I always tell my dad that uh, I'm probably going to be the only one in our family that's going to be able to like take care of them, you know? And like, there's something, there's something about that, that like, that like, that rings true, you know? And so I, yeah, like, um, I really appreciate that there are so many Hmong female, um, Hmong women who are um, doing really wonderful things um, in our community that, you know, uh, that we all can look up to, you know, I mean, you know, Lee, I know I look up to you, you know, I look up to Suni Sali, uh, you know, I look up to, um, you know, just a lot of really great young women in our community. And so, um, yeah, we, we are like, we are totally, totally rocking it. You know what I, I love about this in, in, is is the claiming of space. This is one of the senses I got looking and reviewing your work. Mm -hmm. um, you are out there claiming your space in a way that 
we have been taught, and I think this even goes back to our conversation about the Ivy League space, right? You are supposed to, you are supposed to earn your notoriety by adopting the culture and the systems of of of, of spaces. And I think we are at a, a, a cultural crossroads just generally as a society. But what's most exciting right now is the amount of folks who are claiming their space, not to try to fit in. I, I got into this, we got into this huge debate in the class that I'm in, in my my own master's program, in that, um, you know, there, there's all these questions about how folks, what folks do to get into the academy. And, and I was trying to talk to this mostly white classroom of folks saying, this is all a project in this one particular zone, but outside of this, I could care less about your academy. Like, right. like we're doing this because it helps to, to, to get a few dollars in there, but it is not the thing that drives. And, and, I think this claiming of space that folks are now being willing to do to get beyond what I'm allowed to do and to say, this is what I'm going to do. Right. And if you, if you ain't, if, 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 if you don't understand it, you can kiss my entire ass to borrow from, <laughs> from uh, Harlem Knights. Um, but it, it, it's, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's, it's very important, not only for folks to see that, but for us to be able to back your play in that regard. Because you have to, you're you from from what I hear you and Lee and so many folks talking about, you're claiming your space in terms of the art. You're claiming your space in terms of the story. You're claiming your space in terms of the cultural do's and don'ts that you are allowed or not allowed to do in community. Um, you know, I never thought that I would be a pastor with locks because everybody growing up saying, <laughs> "Oh, you're, you're you're going into clergy. Cool. When are you going to shave your shave your locks and have a real haircut?" Uh, like these, th th there are these moments where where I, I get really excited when folks like you and Cleese and Nisa and all these different folks step out and they go. Not only am I going to claim my space, but I'm going to challenge the norms that we have out there, and I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to own how you feel about it. I'm going to be honorable. I'm going to be I'm going to be respectful um, as much as I can be. But if you hit me with disrespect, then disrespect may be the only language you know, and I might have to do that too. But I'm willing to. Anthony, <laughs> that's 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 exactly my read on this is yes to everything that you've said and the fact that it takes so much energy mm. and grit to navigate both worlds at the same time flawlessly the way you're doing it, right? Because we know you've you've alluded to the the conflicts, if you will, that you've had internally with folks from the Hmong community and the Hmong elders. But we also know, you know, and to highlight further that one naysayer that you shared, the white woman in the museum, my sense is that there there have been a whole host of them and it won't stop, right? It, it'll continue. But you and and Hli and, and other strong Hmong women really have set the bar high for others and community and across the country to follow in your footsteps. I can't help but to think about Trevor Noah's mm. uh, last mm -hmm. episode as he yeah. signed off. And he said, listen to black women. If you want to learn, if you want to know what, what the right thing to do, listen to black women. And so I'm going to extend that statement across to listen to Hmong women, listen to Latina women, listen to indigenous mm -hmm. women, right? I mean, you think about culturally speaking, that thread that c goes across our, our different BIPOC communities and the role that we're expected to play, mm -hmm. traditionally speaking from a cultural standpoint, but also societal standpoint, which is what Anthony is calling out, right? 
and to take this to the next level and to have more men lift up the voices mm -hmm. of women. I mean, that to me was so powerful. Uh, and that really is, is a big takeaway. I hope that people hear as part of this conversation is, yes, it's about lifting each other up and also being intentional about dismantling those cultural uh, tropes that exist out there to reposition us all for success. I, I, I have to make sure to underscore that point, Luce, because in addition to that, Trevor Noah also talked about the fact that often when we when we do what you just said, there's this internal impulse pulse that we've been socialized to think, and that is to lift up one means that we're going to diminish or ignore others. That is mm -hmm. not a cultural mm -hmm. center or, or norm in any of the communities of the folks on this call. That yeah. is a white Western norm that, that, that takes a zero sum gain mm -hmm. approach. There's not even a, it, there's, there's an assumption that already all the other voices are important. We're going to spend the time now to do this. And that does not take away from others, but we are taught that. And uh -huh. so then we in, immediately without even knowing it, begin to try to resist your, your boldness, pa, you know, like, like, like we, we, that's that's the that's the thing that I need us to 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 completely disinvest from, because mm -hmm. that's not what lifting up and listening to and, and, and uplifting those voices means. Yeah. No. Yes. Amen. Of course. Um, you know, in the art world, uh, artists have a tendency to operate on this idea of scarcity, right? That there's not enough space for everybody, and that. Um, that if if that if, if 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 one person has space, and that clearly means that like you know somebody else is gonna lose out on space, and so oftentimes we operate on scarcity, and we don't share information, nor do we share um, um, opportunities. And um, I think that there's like this, I like a a, a new reckoning uh, revolution. You know, I don't know what to call it, but like, I think oftentimes it's the artists of color that are saying, wait, there is like so much space for us. And that like, there is like, there is all the space and like, no longer are we going to operate, no longer am I going to operate on scarcity. I'm not mm -hmm. operating on this idea that there is enough space for all of us. And so like that for me has been um, like uh, just like so wonderful to like realize and to like in in, in like to have um friends um artists non artists you know who um who like like who operate on this um, on the idea that like there is enough space for everybody. That was actually another powerful Asian woman who taught me that, and a photographer Nancy Wong too. Um, mm. from, from Chicago and she works mm. here in, in Minneapolis as well. And, and I went to one of her artist talks uh, as a photographer and, and she talks about this, like, you know, we're always all as artists trying to get that contract, trying to get, you know, that gig there. And why are we fighting each other for it? And I, I was really happy I met Nancy as when I was much younger than I am now, because it really helped me when I developed my practice and my company and like, I don't have to be competing with you, you know. There is enough work yep. for all of us out here. Yeah. And and speaking of work, um, Paho, how can people find you? Are, are things for sale? Like like, what is the best way for folks listening to to get there? 
Yeah. Um, so I have a gallery that uh, that represents me. That um, that uh, that anybody who's like interested in my work uh, can reach out to. Um, and it's Bokley Gallery. B O C K L E Y Gallery. Um, they're based in Minneapolis. I have a show that's currently up at the Walker. Um, there's some pieces at Mia. The Minneapolis Institute of Arts, who's who who has got permanent collection that's um, being exhibited right now too. Paula, thank you so much for joining us. Um, a big admirer as as always, and and glad to know you and be inspired by you. Um, mm. As usual, Anthony has a great quote to to lead us out of this conversation. Yeah, um, from Mijin Yoon, uh, the most interesting challenge is how do you take a constraint and turn it into an opportunity to make something really unique in the world? Perfect. Thanks for joining us. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've shared are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Panel with Ghibli Indians. And our special guest. And I'm Pa, her artist and educator. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, Diverse radio from Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>